0: Hi. I'm Mary Jane Minkin, and I'm an obstetrician gynecologist, and not pretending to be a gynecological oncologist, but I'm a generalist. But I do tend to take care of a lot of menopausal women, uh, and so I, I take care of lots of ladies, and I serve as the uh, cl- as a clinical professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at Yale School of Medicine. Uh, and I also run at Yale a uh, program clinic um, called SIMS, or Sexuality, Intimacy, and Menopause for Cancer Survivors. But what we're talking about here is an overview of menopause and several of the issues of menopause. And I hope that you've all had time to see the other videos that we have up on this topic because I think they will give you a good introduction to just general discussion about um, menopause and sex and those kind of issues before we get into those issues for cancer survivors. Okay. And there are my coordinates so you can get a hold of me. (laughs) Okay. So let's go to our next slide. Um, so this is an important topic, but I always like to get a little humor in the beginning of this, and this is one of my favorite slides, and as you can see, uh, our two uh, praying mantises after we have sex, but before I kill you, I'm going to need your help with some shelves. We're going to talk about a little bit more than that today, but hopefully this will get you in a good frame of mind. So what we're going to start talking about is a topic you're familiar with. is called vulvovaginal atrophy, but... I will start off by saying that vulvovaginal vaginal atrophy is not the official term that we talk about, use, that we use in talking about dry vaginas and menopause. The new official terminology introduced about five, six years ago was genitourinary syndrome of menopause, abbreviated as GSM why was the change enacted? Well, first of all, VVA is just no longer referred to as VVA, felt by many to be a pejorative term that women don't like to think of themselves as being atrophied and dried up. It's just not a good term to think about. So we needed to come up with a better term. So the new, new term is genitourinary syndrome of menopause. But the good thing about it also is that it does include urinary issues. And as all of you do know, that the bladder with the same kind of estrogen receptors as the vagina is prey to lack of estrogen and all the changes that it can occur so that I think it is good to have this all encompassing term out there for us to use. What is it? Okay, let's talk a little bit about specifics. Uh, Basically, it's a condition in which menopausal low estrogen levels cause vaginal walls to become thin, pale, dry, fragile, inflamed, and there's a significant loss of elasticity and lubrication. What are the signs and symptoms? And we'll go over this a couple of times. Vaginal dryness, itching, bleeding, pain, disc pain with intercourse, urinary urgency, and recurrent UTIs. Again, we get into urinary syndrome as well. And the key thing that's important to understand about GSM is unlike the vasomotor symptoms of menopause, which we've talked about, which tend to get better over the course of time, the urogenital symptoms may worsen over time unless treated. Um, And the symptoms are not limited to sexually active women. So again, many of my patients will come in and I'll see their vaginas, which I always say look like the Sahara desert sometimes. And I'll say, is this bothersome for you? And let's say, well, Mary Jane, you know I'm not having sex. But the key thing is that GSM symptoms can bother women whether they're sexually active or not. They can bother them when they're walking, biking, riding a bicycle, all sorts of things Um, that can give them discomfort. So be aware of that. So again another graphic of the symptoms irritation, bleeding, burning you can see for yourself here and all the urinary symptoms. so if you are facing a patient who's dealing with this, you know one of the first things to think about if she has a very dry vagina if she's got no estrogen on board, you probably should think about treating the dry vagina because many of these symptoms may clear up and you won't have to uh, have her go see one of your eurogyne colleagues to take care of the problems you can take care of it yourself very easily for her. This is one of my favorite slides, and I think it encompasses a lot of what we're going to be going on here. Um, First of all, let's talk about the pathophysiology, and what you see on the left-hand side of the slide is the nice premenopausal vagina with good erectile tissue, rugae, muscular coat, and the other important thing, that the inner lining contains a large amount of glycogen. We'll talk about why that's important in a minute. If you go to the postmenopausal woman on the the right-hand side, you see a loss of the folds, loss of the rugae, and a loss of the the inner lining and glandular function. And the person I always like to quote here is my friend Raquel Arias from California. And Raquel always says, isn't it funny and terrible that we lose wrinkles in the places we really would like to have wrinkles and we get wrinkles in all the places we don't want them. But this is sort of a schematic of the vagina. Now, let's get to what this does to your physiology. You're dealing with an increased pH, whereas the normal pH in the vagina is acidic. Normal is basically a pH of 3.5 to 4.5. And again, as you have to explain to patients, because we're you know American. Americans, women particularly, are like, no, acid's bad, because they think of acid in the the stomach, not acid in the vagina. I say to my patients, acid in the stomach may be bad, acid in the vagina is good. And we're going to show another couple of slides about the decreasing superficial cells and the increasing parabasal cells. But what you end up with is a diminished blood flow to the vagina, which leading to decreased transutation. Now, I want to get into that glycogen business a little bit here. When you lose glycogen, Glycogen in the lining. Okay. And I explain this to my patients. They can understand this. I say, who likes glycogen? Lactobacilli I love glycogen. And what happens is when you don't have a lot of glycogen around to feed your lactobacilli, they die off. And what you end up is less acid in the vagina because they're your, la- lact- they're your ma- manufacturers of acid. And you end up with a more basic vagina and you end up with a lot of nastier bacteria besides the tissue being worse. So you're setting your patient up for not only vaginitis, but you're setting setting her risk also for urological issues. And you're even eventually even setting her risk for possibly urosepsis if you go back to the basics here. Don't think about it. This is a nice schematic that I like um, that basically just demonstrates to you. If you see on the left, you see the nice premenopausal vagina, which a lot of superficial cells, which is where the glycogen's hanging out. And you see very few parabasal cells. What happens in postmenopausal times, you lose your superficial cells. You have a much greater proportion of your, your parabasal cells, which we talked about, which leads to a couple of things in the maturation index. Some of our older folks are like myself, are used to dealing with maturation indices. And basically what you're talking about there is the loss of the superficial cells and a significant increase in parabasal cells. And that's what you will see. And this is from a slide from a paper of Murray Friedman's. Murray is one of a practicing gynecologist like myself, but he has a wonderful collection, including a wonderful collection of pictures, all taken with permission of his patients, don't worry. And that Murray actually shows these to his patients to help tell them what's going on. And indeed, just to take a look, just as a graphic comparison here, that you see on the left is a woman who's 65 years old, which is a young woman who's discontinued estrogen three years prior to this photo. And you see how pale it is. Tissue really is not very distensible. You can even see that from the picture. And what do you see on the right? This patient has been still using her estrogen and you see nice, healthy pink tissue, and you can even get a sense of better distensibility. So this is what we want to prevent. We want to have our patients looking with with much healthier tissue and much more comfortable tissue and safer tissue than the poor lady on the left here. Now, this is just some data. There are tons of surveys out there of women dealing with VVA. And this is one of the international surveys uh, called the Viva Survey, ladies 55 to 65. And what's interesting, many of the women, almost half in, in the world, but over half of women in the US reported these symptoms. And they and most of them, three quarters said symptoms negatively affected their lives. So it's not just a dry vagina. This is impacting their lives. Almost two thirds of the women described symptoms as moderate or severe. And indeed, many of these women have been suffering for years. They've had symptoms for more than three years. That's a lot of time for people to be uncomfortable. Well, why does this happen? Well, several things is that a very small percent of the women really understand the symptoms that can be associated. This is, you know, with GSM. Most of the women don't realize that VVA GSM is a chronic condition. Many women think this is an irre- inevitable, irreversible, untreatable consequence of aging. We're just getting older. This is what has to happen to us. Over half of women in the United States are not aware of local estrogen therapy. And that's part of our job is to explain to people, we have topical medications, which are quite safe and quite reasonable for to use. And women are more likely to use over the Counter lubricants and moisturizers rather than seeking a treatment to address the underlying pathophysiology, which you understand and you can help them with. And indeed, that many women don't even know the difference between moisturizers and lubricants. And that's and that can really help your patient by explaining the difference. A lubricant is short-acting, used primarily at the time of intercourse. Moisturizers are longer-acting, inserted vaginally two to three times a week, and they continue to recruit moisture on an ongoing basis. One of the most popular varieties available over-the-counter is something called Replens. And The other thing is, one other thing that's out there, it also makes you sound cool to your patients, don't forget vibrators. That Anything that increases pelvic blood flow is a good thing, and your patients will actually appreciate you bringing this up to them because you are sort of saying that this is okay to use. Not only is it maybe fun for you, but also it's going to be therapeutically helpful, and a lot of people like that. Okay, So now let's get into some of the nitty-gritty talk of what are we going to prescribe for our patients. For those of you who are unfamiliar, we've got lots and lots of different options. We have a vaginal ring of estrogen. And these are basically pure estrogen that there's suppositories. There's tablets you can apply with an applicator. Those you don't have to use an applicator for. We've got several different varieties. We have two different creams that are available. And the key thing to remember, because patients, remember we talked about people getting nervous when they hear the word estrogen, that all of these give minimal systemic absorption. We've got data on that, and we'll talk about use in patients with different cancers shortly. Can you get absorption? Sure. If you take an applicator full of cream and load it up and pop it up all the way into the vagina, you'll get some absorption. Um, But the key thing is, that the, the absorption from proper use is really minuscule. And one of the things that you will note, and if, for those of you who have been prescribing, that you, and if you've looked at the package insert, unfortunately, the package insert on all of these estrogenic products actually has this black box warning that the FDA basically makes us put on every pa- anything that's got estrogen in it, systemic, topical, whatever. And the North American Menopause Society has been meeting regularly with the FDA to try to get those package insert warnings taken off because they're crazy. But until that happens, please spend a couple of minutes when you're prescribing estrogens for your patients to basically say that this really systemic absorption is minuscule. Don't worry about it. And topical therapy is really very helpful for you. So you may have to spend a couple of minutes to reassure your patient. Otherwise, she'll go home and she won't use your product about what your help will help her. Okay. And this is just one simple slide. I mean, you've got plenty out there as far as what kind of vaginal absorption are we getting of the estrogen. And this is from an old paper, Gloria Backman's, where she studied looking at vaginal tablet of estradiol. This is 10 micrograms of 17 beta estradiol. This is not a big level here. And indeed, what you see, baseline levels, and she's got the estradiol group and she's got the placebo group. And actually the estradiol group happened to have, this is randomized, a very slightly increased level over the baseline of the group that ended up with the the, the estradiol levels higher than the placebo. But if you look at the course over 52 weeks, this is a year of use of these women. There was really no significant increase Increase in blood levels of estrogen. Okay. So the key thing is you can assure your patients that we really have very minuscule absorption. Please, and don't be afraid of using vaginal estrogens. How do you choose what you want to use? How do you choose a cream versus a suppository versus a ring? You're going to get experienced with this, I hope, um, and that the patient preference also will drive your choice of therapy. Some people just you know, can't stand the thought of cream. Some people can't stand the mess of it. They want to go with the suppository. You know, Work with your patient. Go with what she's happy with and comfortable with, and you can switch. If you start with one, that doesn't mean that she's going to have to use this forever for over the course of time. The advantage a cream has is, don't forget, we are talking about vulvovaginal atrophy, to use the old term, but you're talking about symptoms involving the vagina and the vulva, and if you've got vulva, issues, you're probably going to have to use a cream. The suppositories are not going to work, or the ring is not going to work on the topical areas. So if your patient wants one product, you're probably going to use a cream. Many people do not like the mess. So many people people are much more much happier using vaginal uh, insert than they are using a cream internally, but they use the cream around the vulva and around the introitus, which is a very important place to use it. And again, there's also unfortunately significant cost issues and reimbursement issues for the different products. So you have to work on those with your patient. So basically find something that she can afford and that she can use. Now, um, what happens when you use local estrogen therapy, it's quite efficacious and you will see some... Oh, all the studies basically to get approval of these drugs, if they are FDA approved, that they basically relieve the vulvovaginal vaginal atrophy, but they also in general reduce symptoms of overactive bladder even, and the frequent UTIs that these women get. Um, you'll end up with a vaginal pH going down again, which will basically improve the maturation in, uh, index. It's going to increase vaginal blood flow, better secretion, and you're going to have less painful sex in general, more satisfying sex and improve sex life. And you can see relief within a couple of weeks of use, so it's not going to take 10 years to say, okay, honey, take 10 years, it's going to be fine. No, she should experience substantial relief soon, and by three months, you're going to basically get the full breadth of what she's going to be achieving. So if she doesn't get complete relief within three months, then you got to start saying, what else can I do for you to help you? Um, now, one other thing to remember um, is that sometimes if your patient hasn't been using vaginal estrogens for a long period of time, she may find it helpful to use vaginal dilators. I'm going to be talking some more about vaginal dilators. And these are them talking about the oncology situations. And vaginal dilators are very readily available. You can get them online, your patients can get them online. We'll go over how to get a hold of them. Um, and they can be quite care- helpful as an adjunct, particularly for somebody who hasn't been sexually active for a while. And your patient will be very happy to do that. Question that comes up regularly, you all know this, but if you're talking to your non on colleagues, um, do you need to use a progestogen when you're using low-dose vaginal estrogen? And you really, in general, do not need progestational endometrial uh, protection. Um, unfortunately, one thing that I will have to make a, a uh, apology for is basically all of the trials of endometrial safety, which again, these products have to have before they get FDA approved, really are a year's worth of therapy. So can I tell you that I have 10 years worth of data on lack of stimulation of the endometrium? No. Okay. Um, Some people say that you might consider if somebody's been on it for a long period of time surveillance. Um, Basically though, um, if somebody is bleeding, you're going to evaluator, of course, and that's going to be your your giveaway that she's doing something. And of course, if she's a super high-risk patient, you may want to do it as well. But there is no official indication to do endometrial surveillance on a regular basis. Okay. Now, are there other options? Yes, there are. Okay. So let me go over some of these. Some of you may not be familiar with them. Some Some of the younger folks may have come across these during training, but these are some new additions to our armamentarium. We talked a little bit about some SERMs and talking about endometrial protection. Remember, we talked uh, about uh, basodoxapine. Let's talk about another SERM. And remember, SERMs bind to the breast to block estrogen, binds to bone to stimulate. And this particular SERM happens to bind to vaginal tissue, and it turns it on. It acts as a stimulant there. The drug is called ospemaphine. Its trade name is osphina. It is administered as one oral tablet. So again, we all know if you've been practicing long enough, you have patients who do not like to touch the vagina, that this is a perfect option. This is a pill. If they're scared of estrogen, this is not estrogen. Okay. This actually has blocking activity at the breast. so You can assure them of that. Um, that basically it's one tablet, much better absorbed with food. So make sure she's taking it at a meal time, and she'll get much better absorption. This is a nice little cartoon. I think uh, talking about different SERMs, what's out there, what's there, um, and this basically talks about the different target tissues, and it talks about the different SERMs that we clinically use in gynecology. And as you can see with ospemaphine, it has significant agonist activity in the vagina. It basically, they're saying it's neutral at the breast. There is some in vitro data. I don't have in vivo data for you, but some in vitro data are showing at least uh, partial antagonistic activity at the breast with agonistic activity at the bone. And it's official approval. and the fact um, that it happens to be uh, very good at the uh, bone, but it happens to be very antagonistic at the endometrium, which is what we're using it for. But you also see this is, basidoxifene is not a drug for vaginal moisture here. So keep these things in mind. I think it's a helpful slide. Okay. So again, one thing that you can say with osfina, again, it may take a little bit longer to kick in, although you may see some activity by two weeks, but you can certainly anticipate results by 12 weeks, but again, usually sooner. And there happens to be uh, data on this, uh, looking at the FSFI, the female sexual function index showing improvement in the FSFI um, with the drug. Again, if you make somebody's vagina much happier, she's going to have better sex. So there's certainly uh, a good correlation there. Okay, side effects, again, any CERM, remember, a small percentage of your people are going to get some hot flashes and leg cramps. That does not mean they're getting a VTE from it. But like all CERMs, there's a very slight increased risk of VTE. We're talking about data, something like 1 in a 1,000 to 2 in 1,000, so a very small risk. But if somebody is a VTE candidate, that's a drug you probably we want to steer clear of, but it's a very small increased risk. And now I'm going to talk about something completely different, okay? Vaginal DHEA. And some of you may have used this already, but we now have an official FDA approved product out there. And the trade name that goes by is Prasterone. That's just DHEA. And Intrarosa is the trade name of it. And it's dehydroepiandrosterone. Explain to your patients, this is something we all have in our bodies, men and women, um, made in adrenal glands and in us ovaries as well. Postmenopausally, the major source of DHEA is the adrenal glands. Um, what this product is, is vaginal suppositories, which are inserted nightly. And what's interesting about the mechanism here is DHEA is picked up by cells lining the vagina in the cells. It's converted actually both to testosterone and estrogen. They do their activity locally and they get further metabolized in the cells, and the breakdown gets transmitted to the bloodstream. Um, and so you end up with very, very minimal increases of either estrogen or testosterone. Non- clinically significant so it's really quite a reasonable drug and the fancy word for what goes on here um uh, was coined as intracrine metabolism. We've heard of exocrine, endocrine. Well, this is intracrine. It happens in the cells of the target organ, what happens. And again, no significant impact on blood levels or est- of estrogen or testosterone. Major action moisture. Does it have some testosterone act- activity? Uh, does it help decrease pain? Does it increase libido? Um, there is some data on improvement in the FSFI with prasterone as well. Um, some people believe that testosterone um, is active for pain. Uh, some of the old folks in the group, like myself may remember the days um, that we certainly used a fair amount of testosterone topically for uh um, but it certainly may have some helpful value there. Okay. Um, and again, it's a daily intravaginal suppository. Use it at night. Um, again, talking to mechanism of actions. There is no official boxed warning on it. It has not yet been studied in breast cancer survivors. Okay. And the person, the article here that I would encourage you to read if you want to really learn about this, the person who really championed um, prasterone for vaginal use, and then and, and sort of the champion of the intracrine activity is Dr. Fernand Labrie, who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, but he was the big, um, big person involved in it. And of course, David Archer has been involved in many of the trials here as well. So I'm going to segue over to sex. I just want to see if you're all paying attention here, okay? Uh, because this is something I was asked to cover, and just this is a review, um, just some of the formal definitions and terms. And one of the things that interests me that the actual people still use this this paper from urology. This is from the urology literature, where this classic paper is printed. You may want to take a look at it. But going through the different dysfunctions. So sexual dysfunction is defined as disturbance or pain during the sexual response. I don't want you to memorize this slide, but basically if, if you're going for boards or for our younger younger people here, if anybody asks about the medical causes of female sexual dysfunction, just say everything and you'll, you'll cover everything. But basically all of these have been implicated as far as female sexual dysfunction. And you can see it covers just about everything we deal with in medicine here. And as a corollary to this, I'd like to show you medications that may cause female sexual dysfunction. And you'll look at it here and just about every medicine is listed. Um, so when your patient has a bunch of comorbidities and she's taking a lot of drugs, it can be the comorbidities, it can be the medications, which are helping contribute, besides some of the OBGYN issues that patients dealing with, or relationship issues. So it's got a whole lot of stuff to, I don't expect you to memorize this, don't worry, but it's there, okay. So there are four basic types that we talk about. We talk about hypoactive sexual desire disorder, and that we're gonna talk about mostly in the context of our menopausal patients that we're dealing with. However, sexual arousal disorder, orgasmic disorders, and pain disorders also occur. You know, okay. And how do you evaluate your success in therapy? Well, there are a lot of different scales that are available. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to tell you that one is better than another. The FSFI is very commonly used, but there are plenty out there that you can use that are validated studies. So, you know, if you don't like this one, there's plenty more out there. Okay. So hypoactive sexual desire disorder, persistence or recurrent deficiency, or absence of sexual fantasies or thoughts, or lack of receptivity to sexual activity. You see the picture of this poor lady who's like, nope, not interested. Okay. And the way I define this, I'm you know, not a very formal person, I'm sure you figured that out already, um, what my patients tell me, and I think your patients probably tell you this too, once I get going, I'm fine, okay, we're fine together, but I could care less about getting going in the first place, and if I had to summarize it, that's what we're talking about, and the first question though that I always ask my patients is, how dry and uncomfortable are you, and they say, yeah, I am, of course, but that's not the problem. Um, well, it is the problem, um, because I always ask if I can help take care of the dryness, and after I fix that, about half the time the patient will come in and say, Yeah, I'm fine. I, I, my desire's fine. It was just the pain. However, about half the time, and these are the trickier patients to take care of, so they'll say, Yeah, I'm comfortable now, but I still could care less. Okay. And these are the things that you're going to be dealing with. Um, and again, the other thing that I say to my patients who are reluctant to say to, to acknowledge that it may be dryness contributing to their lack of interest. The one thing I say is, but I would be a very cruel person if I wanted you to help you want to have sex, and then were uncomfortable when you did it. So if they're not interested. For one reason, encourage them to try it for another. Okay. Now, this is a little trickier to treat, okay? And part of the problem is we like to be, you know, we're, we're OBGYN docs and we like to fix stuff. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of stuff in women's lives when they're in their late 40s and early 50s that's much harder for us to fix. There are a lot of familial issues going on. You have issues with kids. And when I give a lay lecture to patients, uh, one of my good joke lines as I use is I say, yes, many women are dealing with kids going off to college and then, or even worse, coming back home. That gets a good laugh. Usually, feel Free to use the line. But again, you're also dealing with a lot of senior issues. Basically, the woman's dealing with her parents or aging parents. And even worse, as I say in my talks, they're dealing with aging in laws, which she has to take care of because the husband won't. Um, and then there are relationship issues, including the partner's health. Uh, we're dealing with women whose husbands, maybe, or partners, may be dealing with prostate issues. Um, and they may also be dealing with cardiovascular issues, all of which can manifest into sexual dysfunctions with a partner. And our patients have work stressors. So they may be dealing with, you know, discrimination issues on the basis of aging, even if not on the basis of uh, being female. So there are a lot of issues that are contributing to our patients' health and and sexual health. And we have to work with her. And you may want to refer to a psychologist or a sex therapist to help with some of these as well. Now, but we're docs and we're medical docs and we want to say, okay, how can we pharmacologically intervene? Well, actually the main drug that's out there for increasing libido in postmenopausal women is now officially testosterone. Um, That basically, um, that there is, unfortunately in the United States, no FDA approved testosterone product approved for women. Um, Men's doses, you say, well, I see advertised on TV or all these things for guys, but the doses are really strong. And what you basically have to use is about a 10th of the male dose, which is hard to do. Um, You can also get testosterone from a compounding pharmacy. It's not illegal, um, but you do have to know your pharmacy because these can be tricky uh, formulations to to make. Um, There was very excellent data that was presented presented to the FDA many years ago for something called a testosterone patch, but it was never approved. However, the, proof, the same patch was approved for use in Europe. So I used to make jokes with my patients about going to Europe to get the medications. Um, now, what there has come though, which is sort of uh, renovated the field here, is that there was an official position statement issued by all the major menopausal, gynecological endocrinology studies, medical endocrinology studies that came out not, uh, in September of 2019. And basically they state, that decreased testosterone has been associated with decreased libido in postmenopausal women. It is okay to to supply replacement testosterone to achieve premenopausal levels. You don't want to get super physiologic levels for symptomatic relief. There is also though, according to all the papers and the statements, no reliable data on other health benefits of testosterone. This is for libido. Now you may believe there are other benefits, but officially that's not the official indication for it. But it's, and again, I also tell my patients, I'm not going to turn them into Barry Bonds and they're not going to be able to hit home runs better. Uh, but anyway, um, there is also a, a question in evaluating these women because we're supposed to follow with levels, but there's a question on reliability of the, of the assays and lower levels of testosterone. There's some questions, hey, in guys with much higher levels, but certainly in the women, there can be some question on the reliability of the levels. And of course, when you're giving testosterone, be aware of the side effects, testo- major side effects of testosterone or testosterone, and which are basically masculinizing effects, things like hair loss uh, scalp hair loss, acne, deepening of the voice. Hairs in places you don't want to get them, um, and then with your using if you're using an oral methyl testosterone, an oral product, you may have hepatic issues, um, uh, pro- uh, problems with liver involvement. With a transdermal uh, bioidentical quote unquote testosterone, should not be a problem there. Okay, now so that's testosterone. Many women though are sophisticated and will have read in, you know in the media about a couple of other drugs that have come on the market for libido. Okay. And the two major drugs that have come on the market in the last few years are flabanserin and bremelanotide, And I've given you the references here if you want to read about them. Okay. Um, Are they efficacious? And the efficacy in these products is looking at the improvement in SSEs. Now, again, to the older folks in the group, you're sitting there saying, "Uh uh-oh, this is soapside zetima. It's not it. No, sexually satisfying events is the official terminology. And there are issues on efficacy, cost coverage. The reason I mentioned alcohol issues when and flibanserin was first introduced several years ago. Um, there were very questionable studies about whether women uh, was, was whether this drug was safe to take in the presence of alcohol. And for a couple of years, people were told, "Oh no, you can't drink any alcohol when you're taking flibanserin." And the answer is that's pretty much been removed these days. And and so flibanserin is an oral daily medication. Bremelanotide, okay, is a totally different drug, okay, and that's an injectable drug, okay. Mechanism of action: melanocortin receptor for agonist, and it's used to treat female sexual dysfunction in premenopausal women only it is not officially approved for postmenopausal women although there is data you know okay in postmenopausal women but it's not officially approved and what this is is a subcutaneous injection sort of like an epipen and you want to do inject it maybe 45 minutes to an hour before you're thinking about having intercourse um, it does show a statistically significant increase in sexually satisfying events major side effect is nausea um, but it is approved by the FDA it is available now and this is one of the papers that led to its approval if you want to read about it. So there are some drugs out there, but officially bremelanotide and flavancerin are for premenopausal women. Testosterone is not for premenopausal women. Testosterone is exclusively approved for uh, recommended. I can't say that we have an approved product in the United States, but officially recommended for postmenopausal women. Okay. Many people are interested in over-the-counter remedies. Yeah, there are a couple out there. There is a drug that in Europe is known as Lady Prelox. It was brought to the United States and is called Rostella. Interesting concept that it's basically a couple of amino acids um, and with something called pycnogenol thrown in, which is a uh, pine bark extract. And its mechanism of action is that it's supposed to increase the production of nitric oxide, which you're supposed in turn increases pelvic blood flow. Um, there's plenty of data. Plenty, there's, there's several papers out there uh, showing improvement of the FSFI in a couple of months. Um, again, I've got one of the papers down there if you want to take a look and read more about this medication, but it's over the counter, no prescription necessary, um, and uh, you know has some success with it. Okay. Let's talk about orgasmic disorder, okay? And persistent or recurrent difficulty delay or absence of attaining orgasm after sufficient sexual stimulation and arousal. And this lady's not very happy, as you can see in the picture. This is actually leads to the uh, discussion of the only, and I will say quasi-official indication for sildenafil in women, because a lot of women are like, oh, I want to take, you know, Viagra is a good drug for guys. That's what they call it, sildenafil. But there is no data in women showing any increase in libido, nor should there, because it's not a libido drug. It's a performance drug. Um, And there is no official indication for women for sildenafil therapy, but there is one quasi-official, meaning there's no FDA approval, but there is some data out there. If you have a patient who's on an SSRI and has become anorgasmic related to her, clearly related to her SSRI therapy, this may be helpful. There's a limited amount of data there. Um, And you can see, again, there's a reference down there if you want to read more about it. Not a ton of data. The good news is saldenafil is cheap now. So many of you remember when Viagra came out, it used to be very expensive. But if you go to goodrx.com and look up saldenafil, you'll be able to locate uh, inexpensive saldenafil. It is not covered by insurers. So tell your patient if she wants to get it. It's not in approved by insurers. She's going to have to get it paying out of pocket. And of course, the same stuff for women is for guys. If the woman's got significant cardiac disease, you're not going to use it. But if it's somebody who clearly has orgasmic response blunted because of SSRI use, it's something you might want to think about. So it's an option out there. Sexual arousal disorder. Persistent or recurrent inability to achieve or maintain sufficient sexual excitement expressed as a lack of excitement or a lack of genital or other somatic responses. We're not gonna to talk too much about that. Again, once you've got these people with these issues, you're probably gonna be referring them. And again, sexual pain disorders, you will see, and we're gonna talk more about that, of course, when we're talking about some of our oncology patients who we're treating because we have a lot of patients with dyspareunia, but there are also issues like vaginismus and all other non coital sexual pain disorders. We, see, I'm sure you've all seen patients with vulvodynia, vestibular vulvitis, which may be unprovoked, so you're dealing with them as well. okay. Um, Just a couple of words that I do want to talk about, and this may become relevant as we're talking about some of our oncology patients, um, is the female sexual response cycle, the uh, classic cycle that was expounded by... Masters and Johnson as early as 66 four phases basically and many of you are, most of you are familiar with this excitement plateau orgasm resolution uh, Helen singer Kaplan modified this theory a little bit and she described it as a three-phase model desire arousal and orgasm however what has occurred basically in the last uh, particularly 20 years uh, Rosemary Besson who is the uh, uh, professor of uh, sexuality out in Vancouver uh, and she's written tons particularly about menopausal women but about women in general uh, dr. besson Proposed a different theory for the female sexual response cycle, suggesting that sexual response is driven by the desire to enhance intimacy. So it's not basically a an excitement plateau orgasm resolution. But what we have here next um, is uh, some uh, 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 sort of a brief description of Rosemary Basson's model. And she'll say that the woman probably starting is sexually neutral. I mean, okay, now sexual stimuli may come in, sexual arousal a concern, but arousal increases the desire for additional stimuli, and the intensity can, can amplify sexual desire and arousal will occur and it basically emotional and physical satisfaction, which leads to more emotional intimacy, which, well, Further this process going on, so indeed that when you know so explaining sexuality and sexual response to your patients, you know you may want to bring up some of the talks. And I send my patients to read the, some of Dr. Besson's work because I think it's sort of interesting there. Um, just one thing to mention again to reinforce to your patients, and well, it's not really hot off the press, but it's fairly recent. That ACOG has a committee opinion out there on the use of vaginal estrogen in women with a history, history of estrogen-dependent neoplasia. NAMS has endorsed it. NAMS has an official paper out as well, um, and they still basically recommend the use of non-hormonal approaches first, things like over-the-counter or lubricants and moisturizers, but if you have a patient who's not responding, you certainly have vaginal estrogen for the non-responders. So anyway, so that's what I'd like to end with here, um, and that we've now sort of concluded a sort of a tour of uh, sort of basic menopause 101, <laughs> as I call it, uh, talking about menopause uh, therapy in the post-WHI uh, post, um, uh, era, some talks about systemic involvement, systemic therapy and vaginal therapy. And I hope you will join me in some discussions for a discussion of uh, sexuality, intimacy, menopause for cancer survivors, which we'll be talking about next. Thank you very much for your attention.